Hi again, everybody. I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for downloading the Bengals Booth Podcast. The You've seen the difference, and it's getting better all the time. Edition as I discuss the state of the Bengals and what they are likely to do in the draft with my friend Charles Davis, who calls games for CBS Sports and analyzes the draft for the NFL Network. Then, I'll talk to a man who has seen it all in more than four decades in Cincinnati, Paul Sparling, who announced this week that he is retiring as the Bengals' head athletic trainer. He'll share some great nuggets about Paul Brown, Tim Crumry, Joe Burrow, and more. The Bengals Booth Podcast is presented by Ultimate Bengals. Download Ultimate Bengals ahead of the 2022 season. It's free-to-play next-level fantasy football with fantastic Bengals prizes. Get it now on the App Store and Google Play. And here's a quick reminder that you can have the latest edition of this podcast delivered right to your phone, tablet, or computer by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. It's the greatest thing since the Masters. I joked with a buddy this week that I think I love the Masters tournament more than I love my family. I love the traditions, the green jacket, the champion's dinner, the par three contest, pimento cheese sandwiches, etc. I love the beauty of the course with the azaleas and dogwoods in full bloom. And I love the history and the thrilling moments provided by Jack, Tiger, Phil, and so many others. I have attended the Masters once. And if you stick around until the end of this episode, I will share my amusing but somewhat painful experience in story time with Dan. But now, let's get to football. The NFL draft is three weeks away. NFL Network will provide live coverage of the draft from Las Vegas April 28th through 30th. And this week, I had the chance to visit with NFL Network draft analyst Charles Davis. Charles, your first mock draft came out this week. You have the Bengals selecting Tyler Linderbaum, the center out of Iowa. Tell us why. Well, look, I think he's the best center in the draft. And I think he has qualities similar to Creed Humphrey last year of Oklahoma, who went in the second round to Kansas City, was plugged right in as their starting center, and went to not just the Pro Bowl, but was an all-pro center as a rookie which was really a phenomenal accomplishment. But I think that Linderbaum is a similar player, same type of qualities to him, same type of plug and play right away coming from University of Iowa, where how often is it, Dan, that your head coach spends more time with your offensive line than he does any other position? Maybe since what, Vince Lombardi? Mm. Because he was one of the seven blocks of granite. You just don't get it very often. Maybe in Cincinnati you had that before with Forrest Gregg. Maybe, perhaps. But you hear where I'm coming with that. Like, look, that's where Kirk Ferentz spends his time in the University of Iowa. Like when these coaches scatter, Kirk Ferentz is with that offensive line. He's a tremendous offensive line coach in the NFL. He's been a tremendous head coach at Iowa. That's his baby. And this kid, I think, has the movement skills, the strength, everything that you're looking for to be a starter right away. Now, look, I do realize that you've made some moves in the offseason. I do realize there's a certain young man who came over by the name of Karras right? That, that has center in his background. Last year, he played his first games at guard for New England and played much of the season as their starting left guard. If Linderbaum comes in, Karras goes into competition at a guard spot. So this is more of a the player 
is too good to pass up than any perceived need on the offensive line. To me, yes. And you're also wanting to increase. You remember last year prior to the draft, Dan, look, you remember it all very well. You're immersed in it, right? (laughs) How much was the debate? Like you probably went to different places and said, oh, no, I don't want to hear this debate anymore. Should we take a tackle in Panay Sewell to take care of our young quarterback? Or do we go get Jamar Chase, the wide receiver, right? Because that was what that's all we talked about. And that was debated ad nauseum. And I'm sure you closed the door a few times and said, okay, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. They'll figure it out. Well, they figured it out last year because they knew that they believed in Jonah Williams. So because they believed in Jonah Williams, they said, if Jonah Williams is healthy, Jamar Chase, another weapon out wide. Well, that sure worked out pretty darn well for them, right? Well, to me, Tyler Linderbaum is another way of making things better for this young quarterback, increasing your offensive line. It wasn't a debate last year in Cincinnati. It was a civil war. (laughs) You were team chase or team Sewell. I admit to being team Sewell, but I learned my lesson. What I learned last year is that the value of a transcendent wide receiver is greater than the value of a single offensive lineman, no matter how good the offensive lineman is. And obviously you want great offensive linemen, but a game changing wide receiver has so much value. That was the lesson that I learned from last year. Well, it's a great lesson. And it's a lesson for all of us because it is a a legitimate debate. And as you said, a legitimate war about which way do we go? Because in your team's history, taking Anthony Munoz, a left tackle, sure worked out pretty darn well, okay? You talk about transcendent talent. Yeah, I, I get the wide receiver, but if you all of a sudden you thought you were getting another Anthony Munoz-type player, and he signed off on that, I remember, before the draft, I went, oh, boy, that's putting some pressure on Duke Tobin and the rest of the decision makers. And Anthony Munoz goes, go get the tackle. Because <laughs> everyone remembers how well he played and what he did for a team that went to a couple Super Bowls while he was there. But bottom line is they got it right last year. They nailed it. To me, Linderbaum, again, as you said, I'm taking the player much more so than absolute need. But again, it's not quite the same as I'm taking Sam Bowie instead of Michael Jordan because I have Clyde Drexler, who was a tremendous player. But it's along those lines. Let's not make that mistake again. If I get a chance to get better, I go ahead and get better. NFL Network draft analyst Charles Davis is our guest. Let's talk about cornerback. The Bengals have Chidabe Awuja and Mike Hilton signed for multiple seasons, but Eli Apple is coming back on a one-year deal. Depth beyond that threesome is questionable. So if the Bengals were to go cornerback, which is obviously a strong possibility, who do you like among the guys that might still be there at number 31? Well, I like Kair Elam out of the University of Florida. I love his build. I love his toughness. I love his bloodlines with a, with a father and an uncle who played in the NFL as well. He gets it. Hasn't had quite the college career that you would like due to some injuries, but I think that he's a terrific player. and He's one name that I would list. And, and Dan, I'm not listing him in any order of preference. I'm just listing names at this stage. I wonder if a Roger McCreary from Auburn is going to be available. Really impressed me at the Senior Bowl. Um, I'd been told going into the senior bowl, people were a little disappointed about the lack of plays he made on the ball. I didn't see that in the senior bowl. He made a lot of plays on the football that entire week and showed the aggressiveness and, and the willingness, not just to mix it up in the run game, but to be there in the passing game and make them make sure that receivers were making contested catches. 
I think that the University of Washington has two corners, Trent McDuffie and, and, and Kyler Gordon. And it was interesting. I got done with my first mock draft. I got a couple of texts from some people that I really trust in the league. You know, you and I, we, we, a lot of things that we do, we bounce off of other people in the league that, that we count on. I didn't even have to bounce this one off. They came to me and said, hey, man, don't fall asleep on Kyler Gordon because I had Trent McDuffie going in the teens, okay? Don't fall asleep on Kyler Gordon, the corner at Washington. He would probably be available around that time frame, Dan, that someone would take a good, strong look at and, and say, hey, he might be the guy that we would go for. So I'm just talking about in the first round. As we get past the first round, those numbers start to really jump out there more and more because there's plenty of corners, not nearly as many receivers, but there's still a decent amount of depth at the corner position. But those would be the guys I would see. I don't know that there's going to be a precipitous drop for the top corners. You know, would an Andrew Bruth from Clemson drop in there? I don't think so. Uh, Derek Stingley, you know, unless, unless something really crazy happens, I don't see any of those guys dropping down. And certainly not my guy, Sauce Gardner. No, 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 no. <laughs> Listen, I was working a show the other day and we did a thing like, where's the highest he can go? Where's the lowest he can go? And I think the highest we started with was three to Houston. And the lowest was 10 to the Jets with their second pick. If the Jets don't use him at four with their first pick, you know, I mocked him to Seattle at nine. I mean, could you imagine if Pete Carroll saw that Sauce Gardner was still standing there at, the, at nine? with the way he likes to play with those corners, with the, the length of those guys. Look, Richard Sherman is going to go to the Hall of Fame. We know that, right? And he's built similarly to, to Ahmad Gardner. Ahmad Gardner is way faster than Richard Sherman. What Ahmad's got to do is maximize the brain power that Richard brought to the field. And the reason he didn't get beat very often, he eliminated most of the stuff you, couldn't, you could do or couldn't do against him before the ball was snapped. And he was ready for what was remaining. That's what the great corner does. That's what Sherman did. That's going to be the next step, step for Sauce Gardner. I'll tell you this about Sauce Gardner. So he's been attending most of the University of Cincinnati spring practices. He has been coaching up the young guys. And it shows to me the knowledge that he's gained from three years of playing college football. He's out there like a legitimate defensive backs coach sharing yeah. his knowledge, which, which shows me something. Yeah, and, and, and it tells me something about him too, Dan. One, just what you talked about, the knowledge that he's gained and he's and, and, and not, not just willing to impart it, but there's one other element, the pride in the University of Cincinnati program, the pride in being a Bearcat, the pride in what they built up over his time frame and his career there where the team got progressively better to where the last two seasons, they didn't lose a game in the regular season, okay? So he put it up there now. He was part of that grouping. And I think by his coaching up these youngsters, he's also telling them silently, well, what's the old uh, Montreal Canadiens thing about, you know, from fail, failing hands where they toss the torch? Well, his hands aren't failing, but he's passing the torch and he expects them to uphold mm -hmm. it to the standards that he and his teammates have established there at Cincinnati. That's part of why he's coaching these kids up that way, I would believe. NFL Network draft analyst Charles Davis is our guest. The Bengals like to rotate defensive linemen. Right now, at least for now, they don't have Larry Ogunjobi back in the fold after his uh, free agent deal fell through in Chicago. Maybe he winds up back with the Bengals. But in any case, they like to rotate those guys up front. Are there any defensive tackles that you would consider at 31? At 31, a Logan Hall from Houston, although I am really torn on him, Dan, for this reason. Body type. I feel like he's, he's more of an edge guy. He looks a lot like his teammate coming out last year, went to New Orleans and Peyton Turner. 
you know, who, who ended up going in the first round and kind of surprised a few people. Similar body type, but when he works at the three technique, he's tremendous off the snap, great arm over move, tries to knife through and make plays, and he did a nice job of that at the at the combine, not, not just, excuse me, at the uh, senior bowl. So, yes, can he be that type of a guy? I think he needs a little more bulk, but that's just me. But you got a pretty darn good defensive line coach in Marion Hobby, and I'm not just saying that because we were teammates at the University of Tennessee. The world got to see that last year, you know, on display. If you didn't know it before, you had to watch it throughout that. As injuries happened, as different things mixing and matching, that line continued to play better as the year went on. So I would think that he would benefit from that. But he would be a guy um, because I don't think Jordan Davis from Georgia, Devontae Wyatt from Georgia, I don't think they make it down that far, you know, in terms of being big defensive tackles and guys that would go. If you're going to sneak another person into the first round, would it be a Perry and Winfrey from, from Oklahoma as a playmaking type of a defensive tackle? I just am skeptical about how many guys would jump up. I think, Dan, we would, the bidding would start in the second round for D tackles and guys that would be available for, for the Bengals. Travis Jones from UConn, would that name intrigue that would you? Be one, that would be a great one that you would sneak into the first round because he's a guy that's literally on the rise. People liked him before. People loved him even more after the senior bowl. And by the time the combine was over, now you're having full on man crushes. Okay. <laughs> the question you're going to ask yourself is with all that power that he packs and his ability to move people, are you getting pass rush that goes with it? That gives you the value that you want at 31, but he is a legitimate name that if the Bengals are looking and thinking. Yeah, I would put him in there just like you just uh, with, with, with the, the kid from Houston. I mentioned before Logan Hall, they would be my top two candidates at 31 to possibly get in there. Let's get back to the Bengals offensive line for a second, specifically the moves they made in free agency, uh, because you called Bengals games this year for CBS. You know, this team. Well, Ted Karras, Alex Kappa, Lael Collins, how big of an upgrade have the Bengals uh, accomplished on their offensive line? Well, to me, this is how big it is, Dan. Collins immediately slots in at right tackle as a starter, okay? You already have Jonah Williams as your left tackle as a starter. Kappa slots in probably at right guard immediately as a starter. You remember last year it became a mix-and-match situation. Was it going to be Jackson Carmen? Was it going to be Akeem Adeniji? Was it going to be both of them in the Super Bowl? It was. That's what you ended up with with some guys who, who you know, who went through all that. So he slots in right there. Ted Karras immediately – you can plug him in at center or you can plug him in at left guard. That's the way I look at it. Depends on how you want to go about doing it. But immediately he's got starters potential. That's what he played for New England last year. Remember, I think we said at the beginning, his left guard played last year at New England. First time he'd ever played guard in the NFL. He'd been a center heretofore. But immediately, great upgrades. Guys who plug and play right out, right out of the gate. And we'll just see how it all plays out. That's why I came back to Linderbaum again. I don't think getting Ted Karras takes you away from getting Linderbaum if indeed he's still on the board and you want to go get him. Because someone could go ahead and pluck him before you get to 31. He's that good. You called the Super Bowl last year for the international feed. How surprised were you by the Bengals' success? Oh, I think I think anyone who says that they weren't surprised is a little bit disingenuous. I, Dan, I think that anyone who would sit here and say, well, you know, preseason, I had the Bengals riding it all the way through. <laughs> We saw talent there, but there were enough question marks to give you pause. That offensive line that we talked about. Remember, Jonah Williams hadn't done it for a full season yet. 
You know, he's a first round draft choice that had been dinged up the whole time. And remember, the debate was still raging. Well, I don't know. They probably should have gotten Panay Sewell instead of the wide receiver because you got a bunch of receivers. So that debate was still raging. Joe Burrow coming back from the knee injury. Would he be the Joe Burrow we expected him to be? Turned out he was and then some even as he was still working his way back through the knee injury. How about on the defensive side, when you just get to the cornerback position? I don't know anyone who could have said Eli Apple would have given you that type of play that he did all year long. I just don't know that anyone would have, you know, signed off on that and said, yeah, I'm in Eli Apple. He's going to give you exactly no, because Trey Waynes, who was supposed to be that guy was ding most of the year. So Logan Wilson comes out hot, intercepting passes like crazy, gets hurt. Uh-oh, what happens now? Well, they found a way to plug and play. Larry Ogunjobi does a great job. But how about how great a move was that by Duke Tobin and crew to get B.J. Hill right before the season begins? As it turned out, it was a, a prescient move because once Ogunjobi got hurt, B.J. Hill moved right in and let him play. So bottom line is I'm just pointing out different spots, Dan, and I could go into other ones. Did we expect them to be improved? I think yes. I, I think people like Zach Taylor, like what he brought to the table. But the idea of 625 and one turning into a Super Bowl team in year three, I, I would have to say that anyone who told me they saw that coming, I'd have to put them on the stand and question them a little bit. I don't believe, <laughs> I don't believe they're being tr totally truthful with us. Put your left hand on the Bible, raise your right <laughs> hand. <laughs> We're talking to uh, NFL Network draft analyst Charles Davis. As long as the uh, the topic is uh, looking ahead and making predictions, yeah. Caesar Sportsbook came out with their season win total odds a few days ago. In the AFC, the favorite is Buffalo, 11 and a half wins. The Chiefs, Chargers, and Broncos are next at 10 wins. Then you have a bunch of teams, including the Bengals, at nine and a half wins. Should four teams have better odds in the AFC than the defending AFC champion? As a general rule, the answer is no. I mean, as a general rule, no. But here's where we run into what, you know, let's just go ahead and say it, Dan, because you and I are friends. We've been, we've known each other a long time. I do believe that you and I can put our bona fides up there about knowing the league and knowing how things operate. If you took the name Cincinnati off of this, I think the odds would be higher. I really do. I just think that that's just part of how people think, how people see, how people go through things and experience it. And the idea that Cincinnati is going to repeat what we saw before. Well, remember how short-sighted we're being if we're saying that, because during that Marvin Lewis run, that was what, six straight years in the playoffs? Five and six out of five, seven. Five, five and six seasons, multiple division championships, not to mention wild cards and getting there. So it can happen. But it becomes one of those things where Cincinnati is one of those franchises that people always want to look at the negative side as opposed to understanding what's happening. We forget that in a sense, this team's ahead of schedule. Absolutely ahead of schedule. But the beauty is you got a quarterback that I think would be 95 years old and not satisfied with what he's doing. He'd still be trying to go out and play. And when you have that type of leadership on your team and he's not letting down, I think everyone else will come along with him. So I see Cincinnati a little bit higher than that, but I understand why they have other people ahead of them because I just think it's a, how would we say it, Dan? Institutional type of thinking with the league. Other franchises will get a little bit extra than maybe a franchise like Cincinnati. A couple more questions for Charles Davis. The Bengals lost CJ Uzama as a free agent to the New York Jets. They went out and signed Hayden Hurst to replace him. 
let the record show that in 2018, you might not even remember this, you had the Bengals selecting Hayden Hurst in a mock draft. <laughs> Boy, you went deep, didn't I you? I did. Well, it all, it, it all comes back around. <laughs> like I saw that coming. Hayden Hurst has been how many places now? Because he was in Atlanta, but he started out. Who took him? Baltimore. Baltimore, Baltimore, Baltimore and Atlanta, two years apiece. But this shows you a little bit, too, about how the league operates. Um, for fans, many who know this, so I don't ever want to act like I'm talking down to fans. I don't know how you feel about it, Dan. You've been around this league a long time. I've been around it a decent amount of time as well. One thing I've told my colleagues is we, in the positions we're in, I think we have to be more careful than ever about understanding that fans have access to information way better than they did before. You know, I think you and I, if we were sitting in a, in a, in a, a, a room one day with a bunch of Cincinnati Bengals fans, and they were peppering us with their thoughts and opinions. We used to have a great Trump card. Do you remember what it was? Well, we, you know, we get to watch all the all 22 tape. We get to watch the coaches tape. You guys could never see that. Guess what? They can watch the all 22 tape and do okay. so. So, so, so now you're in a position where, your opinion, their opinion, they're like, look, I've watched eight games too. I know what I'm talking about. But one thing I, I want to bring up with this is Hayden Hurst was in the division. And the other part is they keep all the reports that they filed on kids when they were drafted. So if you like the young man, but you didn't get him, there's someone in that building that said, you know something, I really liked Hayden Hurst coming out. And they bring that file back. And then, of course, that file's upgraded because of the, what he's done since that time. You saw him twice a year within division. You scouted him coming out of college. There's someone in that organization, maybe multiple people said, you know something? Hey, like Hayden Hurst, here's our opportunity. Uzama's gone. And they bring the reports, they go over the tape, the whole deal. But that's how it goes. None of that stuff's ever filed, jumped. Like all those files are kept, just like you finding me with the 2018 mock draft. <laughs> Duke Tobin and his staff, they've got all the reports. Someone liked Hayden Hurst way back when, and they think that he still can be a value now. That's why he's a Bengal. Last thing, and I'll let you go. This is a Bengals podcast, but we obviously have a lot of people listening that are interested in the University of Cincinnati. There's a chance the Bearcats could have eight, maybe even nine players drafted. The school record is six. What do you think? of the rise of the Bearcat program under Luke Fickle and the fact that there's so much legitimate high-end NFL talent now coming out of Cincinnati? Well, I, I think it's, it's marvelous because to me, this is like the finishing school of a number of people who have come through there and done a really good job with Cincinnati, but didn't stay the course as long as Luke Fickle has, right? Help me out here, Dan. Let me go back a little. Brian Kelly was your head coach. I'll give you the order. Mark D'Antonio. Yep. Ryan Kelly, Butch Jones. It didn't work out great at your alma mater, but still he, he made it still. to that, that level. Um, Tommy Tuberville didn't work out so well. That, did, that, didn't work out quite that one well. didn't work out so well. And obviously Luke Fickle, who's been the most successful of them all. Well, let's go back. Okay. Very quickly. First one was Mark D'Antonio. I remember, tell me if I'm wrong. Mark D'Antonio's Bearcats beat Rutgers after Rutgers won that big game against Louisville. Correct. Well, Rutgers so was in the top 10 top when 10. Mark D'Antonio and Cincinnati beat them at Nippert Stadium. Correct. Right. You remember that? They had just beaten Louisville and that was a Titanic Thursday night game and the whole deal. Right. And the very next time out, 
The Bearcats did it. Mark D'Antoni did a nice job. Went to Michigan State. You saw how that turned out. Worked out pretty well, right? Mm-hmm. Who was that for? Brian Kelly? Mm-hmm. I was actually part of a broadcast team um, it went during the BCS when Cincinnati went to a BCS Bowl and played against Virginia Tech and Tyrod Taylor and that crew. So you saw the success there. And how did Brian Kelly parlay that? Notre Dame worked out for pretty years. well. Yeah. Now he's at LSU, right? Okay. Then, then we ended up with Butch Jones. Butch did a very nice job there, parlayed that to Tennessee. Was that close to getting over the hump? Yep. That close. In fact, in 2015, had Oklahoma on the ropes at home uh, in Knoxville. Oklahoma rallied, got to overtime. Baker Mayfield got them home. Tennessee almost got over the hump. Then 16, beat Florida, looked good, didn't quite get there. And then the, then the, the, you know, the doors came off. But still, all I'm saying is put all those coaches together. They did have their pockets of success. Fickle has taken it to, remember I said finishing school? He's been there long enough. He's turning over the recruiting. The people are there. The interest is there. The success is there. And then I look back and, and, and Zach Taylor recruited your quarterback, Desmond Ritter, who's about to get drafted into the NFL as well. Now you got the Cincinnati guys together getting it done. Zach Taylor, head coach of the Bengals. Luke Fickle, still head coach of Cincinnati. And this is how good a job it's become now. Luke Fickle, still the head coach of Cincinnati. There have been some pretty darn good openings that have come along, Dan, and you know better than I do how much people have walked in and how much interest Luke may or may not have had. He could have had any of those jobs this but past any year. Any of those jobs were available for him, right? And the best part for me in watching what he's done is it is a terrific college program, but if you have NFL aspirations, you will get coached to be ready to go into the NFL. But if you don't, if you're not an NFL player, you're going to get your degree. You're going to play terrific college football on a high level. You're going to be respected where you go. And pride in being a Bearcat is at an all-time high. I, I don't know that anyone's done a better job over the last 10, 15 years as a head coach in, the, in college football than Luke Fickle. No one will ever do the same job Bill Snyder did at Kansas State. Can't be done. Okay? That was an absolute wasteland. Okay? There's no getting around it. But Luke Fickle over the last 15 years, Who's done a better job overall? I don't think anyone. Agree 100%. Always a treat to pick your brain. I appreciate your time. Keep up the great work. We look forward to walk, uh, watching your coverage uh, with the NFL Network uh, leading up to and uh, during the weekend of the draft. Well, thanks, Dan. Always a pleasure to spend time with you. And one last thing. Thank you so much for being so great to me over the years. Each and every time. I, I can never thank you enough. I, I know we're colleagues and there, there is some, some of that you know formality that goes along with it but it goes far beyond that. You're top of your profession at what you do, but you're top of your profession at being a person too. So thank you so much. I really appreciate you. Kind words, my friend. I appreciate you. Thanks so much. Take care, Dan. Charles will join Rich Eisen, Daniel Jeremiah, and many others as part of the NFL Network's live coverage of all three rounds of the draft. The Bengals Booth Podcast is presented by Ultimate Bengals, the free-to-play fantasy football game. This past season, Ultimate Bengals awarded a weekly winner during the course of the year with tickets, autographed merchandise, and money-can't-buy experiences all up for grabs. Find Ultimate Bengals in the App Store and Google Play. In the summer of 1978, a sophomore at Wilmington College named Paul Sparling started working for the Bengals' athletic training staff part-time at training camp. Fourteen years later, Paul climbed to the top of the totem pole as the Bengals' head athletic trainer, 
a job he's held for the last 30 years. This week, Sparling announced he's retiring. He'll be with the team in an advisory role this season to help ease the transition before officially calling it quits. Imagine what he's seen and heard over the last 30 years and the relationships he's built in the Bengals' training room. I talked to Paul about his life in football this week. Paul, I want to turn the clock back. Do you remember how young you were when you first said you'd like to be the Bengals' head trainer? Actually, I was in high school. Um, a friend of mine, Don Brown, who was a sportscaster and ultimately became a sportscaster in Dayton, um, asked me, I believe I was probably a senior or junior in high school, and he asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. I think he was sitting in the hot tub. He was a baseball player for Stebbins High School where we both went. And I told him my goal was to one day become the head athletic trainer for the Cincinnati Bengals. And every time I see him, he has reminded me of that, <laughs> as that was quite a few years ago. And that's really amazing. I mean, it's there are only 32 of these jobs. And to think of it at that age and, and for it to come true is pretty remarkable. It, it is an incredible story. How I got interested in athletic training was I realized I wanted to be an athlete, but I figured out pretty quickly I was too small to play football, too short to play basketball, and I couldn't hit a curveball. <laughs> I went out for the track team and ran around the, the track three or four times, and I said, this is stupid. I'm running in an oval. What What is the point of this? And the coach asked me if I'd be his manager, so I did that for uh, for the rest of the track season, and then they asked me to be the manager for the football team and then the manager for the basketball team. And one day that coach, teacher coach, at Mad River Junior High asked me if I was interested in athletic training. Now, mind you, this was 50 years ago, and my impression of an athletic trainer back then would have been an old guy, overweight, heavy set with a white T-shirt and khaki pants and probably a <laughs> bald head, towel over his shoulder, and a bucket of water in one hand and a, a black bag in the other hand, but I said, sure, why not? He sent away for a home correspondence course that I took. He spent his own money on it. And I fell in love with it. I learned about muscle strains and ankle sprains, when to use ice, when to use heat, all those kinds of things. And I realized that that just hit me in the right spot. And from that point on, I decided that was going to be the direction I wanted to take my career. We're visiting with Paul Sparling. You attended Wilmington College back when the Bengals held their training camp there. How did you wind up working for the team? And what were your initial responsibilities? Well, one of the reasons I went to Wilmington is because the Bengals were there. Um, I had looked at other schools. I'd looked at Ohio State. That was too big for me. Ohio University was too far out. Bowling Green I visited during a blizzard, decided I didn't want to go up there. And uh, I got a letter from Roger Tewksbury, the head athletic trainer for the uh, Wilmington College, inviting me to come visit his program that he was starting up there at Wilmington. And um, I went up and visited and felt like it fit just right. And if it was good enough for the Bengals, it'd be good enough for me. Mm. I was offered the position of training camp laundry boy by Tom Gray, (laughs) then the equipment manager. They were looking for somebody to do laundry during the six-week time period that they were there. And I jumped at the chance, and I washed socks and jocks and towels and shimmels. Turned out I was getting done much sooner than the guy that had done it a couple of seasons prior. And uh, so Tom asked me to start helping him out in the equipment room, fixing shoulder pads and helmets. And then Marv Pollins, then the head athletic trainer, found out that I was an athletic trainer that could tape ankles. Mm. So he said, when you're done with the laundry and you're done in the equipment room, come in here and help 
me and Bill, Bill Conley, the, the assistant trainer at the time, help us tape some ankles. And that's where it started. And uh, so I have always been able to tell the assistants and students here that I'll never ask you to do anything I haven't done <laughs> because I've done it all. That is quite the uh, from humble beginnings story. What do you remember about Paul Brown? I tell you what, he had uh, such a, a such an impressive personality, gravitas, if you will. Yeah. I mean, when he spoke in some of the meetings, uh, people definitely listened, and very astute. Um, had a wry, funny sense of humor, but it was very clear that uh, he was a, a gifted man intellectually, clearly knew what he was doing, clearly had a, a phenomenal reputation, and I was just, I was honored just to be in his presence. Was he intimidating? Um, the first time I met him, yes, but the more I got to know him, the more I realized he was a very kind and, and gentle man, and just uh, from that point on, actually, Mike was more intimidating to me than, than, mm -hmm. uh, than Paul. We're visiting with longtime Bengals head athletic trainer Paul Sparling. You've had a great relationship with Mike for more than four decades. When asked about you, the first word that he brings up is trust. How did you develop that relationship with him? Well, I just call it the way I see it. Um, as the athletic trainer, there are times you have to deliver bad news. There's no easy way to deliver bad news. But the best way to deliver bad news is to be upfront and honest about it. Um, that to me is a critical, critical trait in what I've done over the years, not only to ownership, but also to the players and to the coaches, to the doctors, to everybody. You've just got to call it the way you see it. You might be wrong, but give your opinion and, and stand behind it. And um, uh, I have been blessed to have a great relationship with Mike. Um, it's been built over years, decades, if you will. And uh, I'll never forget the first time I had to give him bad news. I was the head athletic trainer for the first time in 92. It was early in training camp, and Eddie Brown came to me with some upper extremity arm and hand numbness and tingling that I pretty quickly figured out was probably coming from his neck. And so we sent him into Cincinnati and had an MRI done, and it showed that he was going to need to have season-ending surgery. And I had to convey that to Mike. And uh, I did it to him over the phone, and all I'll say is the reception that I got was less than pleasant. Uh, I hung up the phone, and I asked myself, why am I doing this? I had come back to be the head athletic trainer when they invited me. I saw him out on the field when practice began, and he came to me, and he apologized. Mm. And never from that point on did I ever hear that tone of voice again. And uh, so there's a mutual respect and admiration, I think, the world of him, and couldn't be more pleased to have been able to spend all my time here. We have seen you in the role of bearer of bad news to the players on Hard Knocks a couple of times. I distinctly remember the Reggie Kelly interview as the very first episode of a Bengals Hard Knocks show, and, and you had to be empathetic, but also tell him exactly what he was dealing with. How do you approach that with the players? Yeah, I try to have empathy and uh, accept the fact that it's going to be hard to deliver them that news. But I think it's better for them to hear it straight up from the very beginning and not give them uh, false hopes. Mm -hmm. um, with Reggie's, I knew right away what he had done. I could feel that Achilles was torn, and 
I didn't see any point in delaying the inevitable and tell him, well, let's see, we'll get an MRI. And I just, that the way I would want to be informed is the way I try to inform the players. Uh, realizing that at times it's, uh, you know, you're crushing a dream, you're, uh, you're, you're hitting them where it hurts, and it just, uh, I've dealt with their emotions and what have you. But I've also taken the philosophy that after I give them the bad news, and I'll tell them, you've got 24 hours to pout. And then after that, it's time for us to focus on forward. So get it out of your system. And that's just kind of the philosophy that I've followed. And I think, at least from what I can tell, most of the guys respected that and recognized that you can you can only dwell on the negative. It's time to start focusing on forward. And I tell you, the, the guy that really demonstrated that to me was Joe Burrow. When uh, I talked to him, gave him the same story in the bus on the way from uh, – the Redskins Stadium or the now Commanders Stadium to uh, to the airport. I told him my philosophy of the 24 hours, and he said, "There's no pouting here. Mm. I'm woke, working on getting back." And uh, that spoke volumes to me. And he demonstrated those weren't just empty words. How unique was he last year in coming back from his injury? Well, we we knew that given the nature of the position, the likelihood was he would make it back. Um, so much of it is not just physical, it's the mental, the psychological part of it. And I think that's what he was dealing with early on. Uh, he attacked his rehab and he and Nick developed a special relationship and uh, as a team they worked superbly together. Could not have gone any better. He did not have any setbacks during the course of his rehab. But I think he will probably tell you as time went on during the season that he gained the confidence that he knew he could plant cut and pivot and didn't have to worry about it but it takes time for that to develop and unfortunately there's no mental exercise that we as athletic trainers or physical therapists can run them through they have to go out and do it and experience it with him we we did get him out early during uh training camp uh you know making sure that he was ready from day one um we and we also were cautious with him and didn't let him get too far ahead of himself where he ends up developing soreness and swelling and what have you to the point where you have to hold him back because you have to instead we were proactive about that and he played an active role in the pace as well but you could not have asked for a better patient I can tell you that we're visiting with longtime Bengals head athletic trainer Paul Sparling I mentioned hard knocks how difficult was it to have the curtain pulled back on what you do well, the, I will tell you, the first time that they came in, it was awkward. Uh, we had to kind of decide what are we going to let them see and what are we not going to let them see. The second go-around was easy. Um, we knew what to expect, and we felt comfortable and confident in how we were going to let them see certain things. There were a couple of times that they would be filming, and I ended up having to tell them that um, you know, I needed them to cut that for whatever reason. Uh, but they were very, very cooperative. I, I will tell you, it was a little bit, like I said, awkward at first. I did watch a couple of, uh, of episodes of previous teams just to kind of get an idea what to expect. And they were good people to work with. They were very respectful. And if we said something was off limits, uh, I quickly realized that uh, they would certainly respect that. Every picture of Tim Crumrise devastating injury in Super Bowl 23 includes a young Paul Sparling right by his side. Are all of the stories true of Tim refusing to go to the hospital, of turning down painkillers, etc.? They're not stories. They're fact. Mm. I was there. 
Um, I remember his wife coming in, Cheryl, I believe she had some athletic training background or education, and she came in and saw the x-rays, and I'll never forget how she said, they don't look too bad. (laughs) Uh, Tim could see it as well as anybody, and they looked atrocious. We knew what he had, and and, uh, the physicians, the doctors wanted to transport him to the, the hospital just because of the normal management for that significant of an injury, and he wasn't going to have it. Uh, I can remember Dr. Height Sr. casting his uh, his leg and me holding his foot um, to try to stabilize it while the, he was putting on the cast so that he could at least stay at the stadium for a time and watch the game. The uh, paramedics did ask him if he wanted uh, pain medication because most patients would have requested it. Uh, he insisted he didn't want pain medication. He preferred an alcoholic beverage. <laughs> Uh, I wasn't around to see if they offered that to him, but that's certainly what he requested. And then uh, we did transport him finally before the game was over. And and I remember the next day when we brought him back, in order to get him up on the plane, we actually put him in the food truck, food catering truck on his gurney Mm. and pulled him up and brought him in through first class. Uh, And I mean, again, just a tough, tough injury, tough, tough player. And, um, but those stories are not stories. They are fact. I was there. I was a witness to it. Has there been a Bengals injury that you found especially heartbreaking? Well, I think they all are. All the, I mean, Kelvin Moore fractured his neck. That ended his career when he was playing up in, uh, we were playing up in uh, Pontiac, Michigan at the Silver Dome. Scott Brumfield, when he had the um, spinal cord concussion, that left him paralyzed for months after the injury, ultimately made a full and complete recovery. You know, you, the, the litany of serious injuries that Kajana Carter had, I mean, you just you felt for the kid because he wanted to do so much and so much was expected of him and injury kept him from being able to reach his full potential. Uh, Icky Woods shortened career as a result of, a, of an ACL injury. I mean, they all are tough. Um, I don't know that I'd weigh one more than the other, but, it, you know, injuries are not a good thing. And when you have to deliver bad news, you, you better be able to have a thick skin because not everybody's going to be uh, thrilled with the information you give them. But you've got to be upfront and honest and, and take it and move on and go from there. Coaches want their players on the field. Your priority is health and safety. Is that push and pull difficult? It really isn't. Um, I mean, here it's always been made perfectly clear that the doctors do the doctoring. Um, and that was made very clear from the very get-go when, when Paul Brown first started the club in 1968. And it remains the same to this day. There are some things that we as, as athletic trainers and physical therapists and the physicians can do to help to help try to, to facilitate a speedy return, but safety still has to come first and foremost. You've got to make sure not only that the guy can be on the field and play, but play effectively, number one, and number two, be able to protect themselves. So I think our biggest job is to communicate to the coaches and the players what the expectations are when the injury occurs, and then uh, carry that out, and, and understanding that there's a bell curve, there's an average. Some players will defy the odds, and uh, they can make us look good. Others are on the other side of that bell curve, and they make us look not so good. But there's an average, and we know what to expect. And uh, our job, we want to get the players back on the field as soon as we can, too, because there's no benefit to us keeping them on the sideline with us. Mm-hmm. 
but um, and I understand the competitive nature of the of the position and the sport and there are times we have some healthy discussions about that and I get it that's part of the deal uh, my job is to take care of the athlete make sure that we're doing them right not only for today but for their life after football and it's been made perfectly clear that that's the way ownership sees it and I think it's a it's a balancing act but I think we've done a pretty good job of of making that happen you've been the Bengals point person for following the NFL COVID protocols for the last couple of years. I've seen those emails. I've been subjected to the testing. How did that affect you and the other people in the department? And how do you think the NFL did? Well, the fact that the NFL didn't have to cancel any games, I think, speaks volumes. How in the world you can do that during a pandemic when the rule of thumb is six feet of distance between people Mm -hmm. was amazing. I I didn't imagine it could happen, but um, incredibly it did. The, the league did give teams the latitude if they wanted to bring on additional people to help manage the COVID protocols to do that. And here we decided to absorb it amongst our staff. So it did require a lot of additional duties that we were not necessarily trained for. We learned on the fly. We learned about contact tracing and uh, COVID testing and all that kind of thing. And, and it wasn't just me, it was the entire staff Uh, Our director of security handled the administrative folks. I handled more of the uh, uh, players, coaches, and uh, football staff uh, in terms of enforcing the protocols. But it was an all-hands-on-deck. We all played specific roles. But I will be the first to tell you it was like a second full-time job, not only for me but also for our doctors as well. And uh, it was a challenge. I'm glad it's over, at least for me. (laughs) Hopefully it's over for everybody. Um, Anyone who thought that the uh, getting the vaccine was going to make the 2021 season easier was mistaken. It was not any easier in my mind. The testing ultimately became easier. And I think as time went on, the NFL was able to demonstrate that um, that uh, you didn't need to test as frequently as they did. And, And at the same time, if you're asymptomatic and positive, what does it really mean? So I think a lot of questions were answered. I would assume that uh, there'll be a, it'll be a little bit easier the next pandemic that runs around, and hopefully that won't be in my lifetime. What have you enjoyed most about four plus decades in the NFL? Well, I mean, it's it, it's the the people that you meet, the relationships that you develop, the things that you learn, and certainly Sunday afternoons at one o'clock. I mean, you can't beat it. It it, it is an incredible experience. Uh, I feel sorry for the uh, our interns that worked with us during the 2020 season that didn't get to experience uh, the, what normal games are like. But the the thrill of victory is incredible, and I've learned as well when the team doesn't win the game, not to take it personal. Don't don't uh, let it change your your mood or your attitude. You have to kind of stay even keel. But it's just amazing to me. You get all these players coming from so many diverse backgrounds you really begin to appreciate that uh, there's so many different people, different upbringings, different family backgrounds, different medical backgrounds. Uh, to see them ultimately meld together as a team with one common focus uh, is just, it's an incredible experience to see it. You're still going to be around here at Paul Brown Stadium. Got a lot of responsibilities still on your plate, but you have decided to retire as the head athletic trainer. Why and why now? Well, 
I had told uh, Mike and Katie late in the year that I felt as though after 30 years it was time for me to begin to spend more time with my wife and, and family and begin to enjoy some of the things in life that you, we haven't been able to enjoy. Uh, the, the time commitment is phenomenal. I never envisioned that I would last this long. Uh, right now there are three other head athletic trainers that have been in the league for 20 years or more, which is not very many. Uh, and I was just looking for you know, a, a way to begin to coast, if you will. Most people that when they run a marathon, they don't collapse when they get to the finish line, although some do. I don't want to be the collapser. I want to be the guy that kind of coasts to the finish. And that, that to me was appealing. Um, and I just, you know, the, the last two years with COVID, it made things much more complicated and difficult and stressful. And it's time for me to, to lose a little bit of that stress. It's not good for you. <laughs> and I want to be able to sit back and enjoy, you know, seeing what I've done and, and uh, reflect back on it. And it's time for a younger generation to come in and start taking, taking, the, taking the reins. So it felt like a good time. I like even numbers. 30 is a nice even number. Marv Pollins, who uh, I succeeded, was here for 24 years, so I beat him by six, so I think I'm in pretty good stead with that, but it's been an absolute honor and pleasure, and, and being to, able to be affiliated with the Brown family as their head athletic trainer over all these years has just been something I never could have imagined. Um, yes, I did at one point in time in high school dream of becoming the head athletic trainer, the fa trainer for the Bengals. Not only did I achieve it, but I have been able to maintain that for three decades, which is quite a uh, quite a feat in and of itself. But it's time. I could feel it as the season went on. Yes, it was exciting with the playoffs and what have you, and I was so thankful to get another shot at it. In fact, when Zach and uh, Joe came, I told them then that I was late in the fourth quarter and not planning on going into overtime, and I'd appreciate if they do whatever they could to give us one more shot and they did son of a gun so <laughs> and they'll have another shot next year and we'll see where things end up but I'm just pleased to be able to do it on my terms at my pace and be able to contribute in whatever meaningful manner ownership feels like I can I don't want to be in the way of my successor I want to be in his corner and do everything I can to support him so that it's as smooth a transition as anyone could ever imagine. You've had a remarkable career. Congratulations. I've enjoyed our interactions over the years. Best of luck going forward. Thank you. I appreciate it. Bengals' new head trainer is Matt Summers, who spent the last four years at the University of Louisville and has previous NFL experience with the Chargers. And now, as promised, it's time for another edition of Storytime with Dan. Here's the concept. I've been broadcasting in some way, shape, or form since the mid-1980s when I had a thick head of red hair as a Syracuse University student. While my hair vanished, my experiences grew, and I've had the good fortune to cover Super Bowls, the World Series, the Final Four, major bowl games. Shoot, I was once the announcer for the luge competition in Lake Placid. In other words, I have some stories to tell. And since this is Masters Weekend, that's the topic for Storytime with Dan. Here goes. I have been to the Masters once, not as a reporter, but as a spectator back in 2005, which was the fourth of Tiger Woods' five Masters wins, 
he beat Chris DeMarco in a playoff. That year, Tiger hit the most famous shot of his career and arguably the most famous shot in Masters history. Remember the chip shot on the par 3 16th hole where he hit the ball toward the top of a ridge and then watched it slowly trickle downhill? And just before it looked like the ball was going to stop, it dropped in for a miraculous birdie with the Nike logo perfectly framed for TV for nearly two seconds before tumbling in. Here's how Vern Lundquist called it on CBS. We pick up Vern's call as the ball is slowly rolling toward the cup. Well, here it comes. Oh my goodness. Have you seen anything like that? As a matter of fact, I have. I was there, standing a few feet away with my friends Joe and Paul. We got to the 16th hole a few groups before Tiger played it and were in perfect position to see him make history. Immediately after the tournament, my buddy Paul was obsessed with bragging that we were there, much like I am doing right now. But Paul said, we need proof or nobody is going to believe it. So he called home after Tiger won and asked his wife if she recorded the final round like he had asked her to, and she said yes, so we were all set, or so we thought. Paul lived in Connecticut, and when he got home from Augusta, he reviewed the tape of Tiger's shot frame by frame. Unfortunately, you couldn't see us. From where we were standing, the camera angles were wrong, and the shots were too tight to really point out the three of us. I didn't really care. I figured my friends would believe me, but my pal Paul was devastated. There was no video evidence that we were standing a few feet away from Tiger Woods when he hit the most iconic shot of his career. So, several months went by. I hadn't really thought about it, when all of a sudden one day I see Paul's number pop up on my phone. Hey, Paul, what's up? I can hear him huffing and puffing like he's just run a marathon. Finally, he says... Go to the nearest bookstore and pick up the PGA Tour Annual. Then go to page 21. Got that? PGA Tour Annual, page 21. Click. So, I go to a bookstore. I find the new PGA Tour Annual. I open it up to page 21, and sure enough, there was a two-page color photograph of Tiger taken a split second after the ball had left his club. And sure enough, a few feet behind him as clear as a bell are me and my two buddies standing there with our mouths agape. The third guy in our group, my friend Joe, worked in publishing at the time, so he contacted the photographer and promised to use him on a future project if the three of us could get the photograph. He agreed, and we all have it. Framed proof that we were there. That's a pretty good story, right? Well, believe it or not, that's not even the best part. On the Monday after the Masters, there's a VIP outing where a few people get to play the course. It includes a lottery for some lucky media members, along with some corporate sponsors and other bigwigs. Well, my friend Joe was sufficiently connected that when we made that trip in 2005, it included an invitation to play in the VIP outing on Monday. Greatest thing ever, right? Unfortunately, that year, most of the second round was rained out, meaning they had to play 36 holes on Saturday. And we got a phone call late that day saying that due to the wet weather, the course was taking a beating. 
and that the VIP outing was going to be shortened and we did not make the cut. However, we were invited to give his contact at Augusta National three dates later that summer where we could come back and they would allow us to play the course with a member. As far as I was concerned, that was even better. Sure, we would have to spend the money to get back down there, but so what? We wouldn't be rushed through in a VIP outing. We would get the full Augusta National experience with a member. So, we came up with our three dates, and they said the first one was fine, and we were all set. Or so I thought. About a week before the big day, my friend Joe, who made the whole thing happen, came down with an inner ear infection so severe that he couldn't travel. Initially, me and the other guy, Paul, thought, too bad for him, we're going. But after thinking about it, if not for Joe, we would have never had the opportunity. So, he called his contact at Augusta National and explained the situation. And the guy said, we understand completely, get healthy, and we look forward to seeing you at the club at a future date. That was the summer of 2005. 17 years later, we have not been back because his contact passed away. Moral of the story, if you get the chance to play Augusta National, do not turn it down. And that concludes this week's episode of Storytime with Dan. That's going to do it for this episode of the Bengals Booth Podcast, presented by Ultimate Bengals. Download Ultimate Bengals ahead of the 2022 season. It's free-to-play, next-level fantasy football with awesome Bengals prizes. Get it now on the App Store and Google Play. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to this podcast, and if you have a minute, give it a rating or share a comment. That helps more Bengals fans find us. I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for listening to the Bengals Booth Podcast.